3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. I'm in the studio with Inez, who is frantically scurrying around, uh, having done the majority of our little, you know, little COVID safe clean that we always do as we come in the studio. That's a reminder. The pandemic is still going, uh, everyone. And you should be masking up. You should be sanitizing still and, you know, trying to... Mitigate your social interactions and minimize uh, risk of pandemic spread because, you know, government's not helping us. They've rolled back paid pandemic leave. Your mic is on. Hello. That was was pretty hectic, Um, but that was uh, fun. I did a little cleaning. Yeah. Um, I cleaned my soul. Yeah, and I did not not help. I'm sorry. I'm the... It's my toxic transmasculinity. Anyway, um, we have, of course, as usual, a big show for you today. Um, and today, hopefully, we'll be able to bring you um, a pretty exciting focus on anti-militarism, uh, as you would have heard on 3CR uh, across this week in the breakfast shows and also across the past week, we've been leading up to disrupt land forces, which is happening this week in Minjin, 1st to 7th October, to disrupt the largest uh, land, wait, largest land-based weapons expo in the Southern Hemisphere. So we'll start off, um, maybe do you want to kick it off, Ines? Absolutely. So first we will um, listen to Marie Toulé, um, who will speak about self-determination and the Pacific Global Youth Movement Pursuing the full UN prohibition of nuclear weapons ban as part of the event Reverse Trend, Reverse the Trend Pacific hosted to mark the International Day of the Total Elimination of Nuclear Weapons. And for more information, we'll post the link. And the voices of Pacific youth are raised against the twin existential threats of nuclear weapons and climate change that threaten the Pacific region and the entire world. You know, before when I said that your mic was on, I had not turned your mic on. I turned on another mic. So sorry, listeners. If you were hearing that uh, a little quietly, that's because it was coming from a mic that was very close to Inez, but was not, in fact, Inez's mic. Anyway, after that, uh, we will hear a recording of Sua Show's Ian McIntyre, who takes a look at arms fairs in Australia and the local history of community resistance against these events. And Ian's written extensively on this topic in the book Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, the ADAX 91 story. So uh, really excited to hear that uh, and sort of provide some context to what's happening with Disrupt Land Forces and this broader history of anti-militarist resistance in Australia. Then we are joined by 3CR returnee Matt Kunkel, who is the CEO of the Migrant Worker Centre, and he speaks on the centre's new report, Waiting to be Seen, Problems of Australia's Visas Processing Delays, which shows Australia's migration system has denied tens of thousands of people the stability and certainty to build their lives, with unacceptably high numbers of applicants, some waiting as long as three years for the outcome. It's awful. It's terrible um, and completely unacceptable. 
Uh, we're then going to be getting some live updates from Disrupt Land Forces 2022, which, as I mentioned, is an anti-militarist week of protest against the Land Forces, the largest land-based weapons expo in the Southern Hemisphere. It's running from the 1st to the 7th of October and involves creative disruptions against the military-industrial complex and fighting back against weapons manufacturers including Tails, Elbit, Rheinmetall, and so on. And you can keep up to date as well by following at Disrupt Wars on Instagram or heading to disruptlandforces.org. And then we will be joined by Ramak Bamzar, who is an Iranian-Australian photomedia artist and costume designer who explores the connection between the male gaze and beauty standards in Middle Eastern pop culture. And through stage photography, Ramak delves into her vulnerabilities, memories and anxieties to explore the formation and development of female identity under religious dogma. Cool. Yeah, it's a, a big show as always. Uh, we might head into a little CSA before we jump into our news headlines for today. 3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. In the lead-up to the state election, join the Homes Not Prisons campaign for street theatre, speeches from people with a lived experience of criminalisation and a rally demanding investment in Aboriginal community-controlled public housing for criminalised women and their families. 4pm on Friday 14th of October at Parliament Steps in Nam, Melbourne. Keep the pressure on. Fund communities, not prisons and police. Friday 14 October, 4pm, Parliament Steps. Homes Not Prisons is a 3CR supporter. We're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and these are the news headlines for Thursday, the 6th of October. Anti-war activists have successfully disrupted the Land Forces Weapons Expo taking place in Brisbane this week, peacefully protesting the event amongst a major police presence since Tuesday. The activists aim to bring increased scrutiny to Australia's arms policy, saying that arms fairs like Land Forces provide a meeting place for one of the most corrupt and destructive industries in the world. Brisbane Greens councillor Jonathan Stree was arrested at the protest along with three other activists. Police allegedly used unnecessary force during the arrest and have imposed onerous bail conditions on protesters. Protests are set to continue until the expo ends later today. Also in news headlines, a state inquiry into police culture and police responses to domestic and family violence, has heard that Queensland police promoted a senior officer who was found to have engaged in racist and sexist behaviour for over 13 years. The inquiry heard of several cases of systemic bullying and sexist behaviour being dealt with local management resolution, basically a conversation with a more senior officer, an approach designed to avoid punitive actions against the police. The Queensland Police Commissioner 
Katerina Carroll, is being questioned this week and said that the management of bullying incidents in the police force was completely inappropriate and accepted that some officers feel they could not make complaints for fear of retribution. In other news this week, the Teachers for Refugee Forum is demanding the federal government end study restrictions for refugees and asylum seekers by converting temporary visa holders into permanent visas. Advocates say that current Year 12 students on temporary protection visas and safe haven enterprise visas have to apply for university in 2023 as international students, and that past high school graduates are still not able to access reasonable study opportunities due to these restrictions. The forum is calling for the current federal government to fulfill its promise to grant more than 19,000 refugees on temporary visas, saying it is unforgivable that the Morrison government's inhumane refugee policies live on almost five months since the election. And finally in headlines, citizen scientists have found 60 endangered great gilders in forest marked for logging in a survey conducted in Victoria this week. The abundance of gliders found by citizen scientists in evidence that gliders are inhabiting the same native forest that the state government is releasing under the current timber release plan. The government does not conduct its own surveys for endangering species before approving timber release plans. And King Lake, Friends of the Forest Advocates, saying it is shocking that protection of native wildlife from extinction is left up to community efforts. The Andrews government has made no moves to adapt logging practices in recognition that more fauna populations are becoming endangered. But what has managed to pass are laws that see harsh penalties for people protesting logging operations or conducting citizen science surveys. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 6th of October. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. Ah, incredible. I just want to come in with something after that. I mean, what this, it, it is also... Uh, absolutely demonic and bleak. I mean, considering that, you know, we've seen this crackdown on forest logging protests and, um, you know, the passing of legislation to mm. prevent people from being able to fight back. But I don't know if maybe it's just because I'm terminal, terminally online. Um, but I did see this incredible video where scientists attached sensors to a philodendron plant um, and were and the sensors were attached to a robot arm that had a machete attached to it and just with the sensors attached to this plant's leaves this robot arm was swinging this machete around wildly so what i'm saying is why not just arm plants this is the correct answer that i've been waiting for uh now that i've said it there's probably going to be some new legislation tabled by the andrews government in the lead up to the november election but i'm just saying folks arm some plants Anyway, you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Black Spark is an independent, volunteer-run bookshop, gallery, music and community space in Northcote, Nam, dedicated to creativity, learning and liberation. Black Spark is a space for the entire community, free of charge, hosting art, music and literary events. To keep Black Spark free, open and accessible to everybody, we need your help. We are calling for your support for our rent fundraiser to keep our doors open into the coming years. With your support, we can continue to host book and exhibition launches, art auctions, fundraisers, music gigs and facilitate opportunities and growth for emerging artists and grassroots communities. For more information, visit Keep Black Spark Alive on chuffed.com or check out Black Spark on all the socials. 
And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're joined. Oh, well, we're not joined. We will be playing a recording of Mary Tillow, who spoke about self-determination and the Pacific Global Youth Movement pursuing the full UN prohibition of nuclear weapons ban as part of an event called Reverse the Trend Pacific, hosted to mark the International Day for the Total Elimination of Nuclear Weapons. And, of course, for more information about that and events, you can uh, look up Reversing the Trend uh, RTT Pacific. And this is basically the voices of Pacific youth being raised against the twin existential threats of nuclear weapons and climate change that threaten the Pacific region and the entire world. Bulbunaka, um, everyone. Uh, thank you, Dimitri, and thank you, Vela, for sharing. As part of this uh, International Day for the Total Elimination for Nuclear Weapons, we are reminded of the nuclear aggression and its multi-generational trauma the testimonies of the veterans that we just heard and the community's resilience that have deepened its activism amongst youth in the Pacific and diasporas today. Just like the weaving of the mat, the nuclear advocacy come a long way. It's a process. To put into context, the weaving of the mat begins with the pandemic leave is clean, cooked, sun-dried, after it has now been collected and rolled and stored until it's ready to be woven by the Matai's experts, who is then ready to weave in carefully their intelligence patiently. When the process of mat weaving has concluded, what we see before us is a complete mat. For the outside world, it is the complete mat that they see, whereas for the weavers, the matais, they see the knot that holds the mat together. And this knot represents the core values that hold us together. The weavers are the guidance of the ocean, who we see today as the young people. The mat is used in different ways. We use it to celebrate life, to solve conflict, to discuss nuclear ways, or to self-determine our sovereignty. Also, it is important to note that the Matai can identify the origin of the mat. The Matais also represent the continuing mobilizing and solidarity work the youth is carrying on from our Matais. Our Met holds the stories and our ongoing struggles we have today, to name a few, self-determination, climate crisis, nuclear justice, the protection of our Blue Pacific, young people addressing corruption, banning of deep-sea mining, LGBTQI issues, young people with disabilities, policy writers, artists, entrepreneurs, etc. These are the scope of 
the different issues that the Pacific youth and diasporas are advocating on. It is the fabric of issues that makes the map. We see our ocean as this map. There is not enough data or mapping scope on what the young people in the Pacific and diasporas are doing. This, this begs for more research to cover the vast and diverse issues that the MET holds, that the young people are leading. Again, to our Matais and everyone here today, it is my pleasure to be part of the synergy of dialogue on how we can continue to strengthen our advocacy and engagements in the Pacific. Nuclear-free Pacific and self-determination struggles are two issues that are close to my heart. Both these two issues represent and urge us all for collective voice and solid action. Pacific Youth for TPNW, uh, advocacy and diplomacy, uh, compresses of individual delegates representing Pacific grassroots and civil society organization. And the Pacific Youth for TPNW is part of a global youth movement pursuing the full extension of the UN's treaty on the provision of nuclear weapons. Also, the Pacific Youth have continued to rally the non-states and relevant state actors to contribute to the development of a potential nomadic framework and institutional architecture for humanitarian responses and environmental action of the nuclear aggression and its impact on the health, environment, and human rights of the Pacific communities. Self-determination, on the other hand, in regards to the importance of self-determination, governing of our, uh, of our sovereignty, there is no easy solution to, to resolve self-determination struggles under the current SDG goals framework and the 2050 strategies of the Blue Pacific framework. Yet we all know that although the end of 2020 marked the third decade of the eradication of colonialism, there is at least six non-subgoverning territories from the Pacific listed at the UN decolonization committees. At this time, there are non-subgoverning territories such as West Papua, Bougainville, and not listed uh, in the uh, UN decolonization community. Against this case of West Papua's rights to, uh, to self-determination is mobilizing weavers has been effective to address the grassroots and conflict while as maintaining a strong solidarity movement. Um, to conclude, our collective uh, voices as Matai bags for greater engagement that goes beyond the top-down approach. The contextualization of the regional issue, such as the nuclear free Pacific and right to self-determination struggles, as a bottom-up approach is critical important. As stewards, we continue to compel our collective rights of our land, our ocean, our culture, and our ways of living. Our call to self-determine, our safeguard, and protect our narrative is Hours to liberate Vinaka.
That was an excerpt from Mary Tillal, who spoke about self-determination and the Pacific Global South Movement, Youth Movement, sorry, pursuing the full UN prohibition of nuclear weapons ban as part of an event, Reverse the Trend, Pacific hosted, to mark the International Day of the Total Elimination of Nuclear Weapons, September 28. And the voices of Pacific youth are raised against the twin existential threats of nuclear weapons and climate change that threaten the Pacific region and the entire world. And now we will be going to a song, uh, Better Days, by Dallas Woods, Baker Boy, Sepper the Great, and it is an Airwolf Paradise remix. Ain't no fairy tale when you live in hell. Trust me, that's a story I know very well. Bad weather, no umbrella, it gets better. Seen it with my own eyes, uh. Money and job, you ain't got one. How you gon' raise my godson? Adoption. I know that's not an option. Your baby mama watching. Other girls and their husbands, they with friends and kids. That's how a family functions. We face obstacles, that's not cool. But you got to choose what's best for you. I see you trying to better yourself and trying to better your health. I see you getting closer yeah, every day. Yeah, super understanding what the master plan. Me nigga, who do I trying to find another hand? I'm pushing to the storm, being better than I am. When I make a bigger try, I Trying to push me down, man. I'm bigger than the image and the fans. Vision is precision. I can see what's through the brands. See what's through the smoke. Like it's not a joke. When I finally drop my mask, my makeup it almost broke. was the Airwolf remix of Better Days by Baker Boy, Dallas Woods, and Sampa the Great. That was uh, such a great little pump-up track for this morning. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM, and it is about 725. We Movement Theatre is a disability-led physical theatre company. 
Their Fringe production, Still Wanna Be a Rabbit, is directed by Yumi Umamari and starts on Thursday the 6th of October and goes through till Sunday the 9th of October. Weave Movement Theatre can finally stage their show after being locked down four times over two pandemic years. The work moves between the surreal and absurd, humorously reversing perceptions of difference with film, installation and live physical performance, mischief and meaning. For details and tickets, go to melbournefringe.com.au. Weave Movement Theatre is a 3CR supporter. Run, rabbit, run, rabbit, run, 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 run. Welcome back to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR. Next up, we'll be hearing a recording of Sewers Show's Ian McIntyre, who takes a look at arms fairs in Australia and the local history of community resistance against these events. Ian has written extensively on this topic in the book Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, the ADEX 91 story, which gives a detailed account of the November 1991 protest, where over a thousand protesters blockaded the National Exhibition Centre in Canberra, Australia, for 12 days with the aim of shutting down the Australia International Defence Exhibition. Hi, I'm Ian McIntyre. In this presentation, I'm going to provide a short history of anti-arms fair protests in Australia, primarily focusing on those which occurred from 1986 to 2008, as well as touching on 2021's Disrupt Land Forces protest. Each protest occurred in a different context and experienced differing levels of success. One key similarity in strength, however, was that in each case, campaigners chose to go beyond the networks and movements they primarily identified with to build coalitions. The enormous waste of resources associated with arms manufacture and the uses to which weapons are put in facilitating the exploitation, repression and destruction of people and places means that the associated issues range far and wide. Clearly the promoters of arms fairs believe that bringing manufacturers and weapons dealers together in one place at one time has the potential to normalise and build the weapons industry as well as to make them, as the organisers, a lot of money. On the other hand, the holding of high-profile arms fairs has had a long history of backfiring, as they can serve as a unifying target with the potential to mobilise a wide range of opponents. The issue of arms fairs in Australia first came up in 1986, when DeSeco Limited tried to hold the Pacific Area Defence Exhibition, or PADEX. This was billed as, quote, the first ever exhibition of global defence equipment in the Southern Hemisphere and was promised to be one of the largest exhibitions of its type in the world. Paydex initially attracted interest from over 100 potential exhibitors hailing from 15 different countries. A number of campaign against Paydex coalitions sprang up around Australia bringing together religious, union, peace, solidarity and environmental campaigners. They were told by political insiders and others that they didn't have a hope of stopping such an arms fair. However, although the peace movement was beginning to wane from its recent peak, the coalition nevertheless was able to draw on networks and sentiment, which in recent years had seen anti-nuclear rallies bring hundreds of thousands of Australians into the streets. The Nuclear Disarmament Party had won over 7% of the national vote in 1984. These achievements were, in turn, linked to over a decade of protests against uranium, US military bases 
and US warship visits. And further power was drawn from the fact that 1986 was the UN's International Year of Peace. Framing their campaign around the International Year, the Coalition was able to convince the Australian Council of Trade Unions to place industrial bans against the arms fair. This forced the event to be moved from Sydney to Darwin. It was subsequently abandoned as the Federal Australian Labor Party government, under great pressure, eventually refused to lend its support. DeSeco did not give up, however. Following the Paydex debacle, the company drafted in former National Return Services League President Sir William Keyes. Using his connections, they launched a new event, the Australian International Defence Equipment Exhibition, or ADEX. By this time, the peace movement was in decline, and the federal government had released its 1987 defence white paper, calling for a dramatic increase in military spending. With the Hawke government eyeing arms exports as a way to offset the cost of importing new weapons, the government lent much support to the ADEX 89 event. Held in Canberra, it eventually saw 214 companies, governments and official bodies from 14 countries take part. Opposition to ADEX came in a variety of forms. Following a series of debates over appropriate tactics, the Stop ADEX campaign worked towards organising a blockade. Whilst the 1989 protests were unable to majorly disrupt the arms fair, they succeeded in drawing attention to the issue, and off the back of this came two years of frenetic campaigning. This came in the context of many new activists being mobilised and older ones re-energised through protests against the Gulf War, which was the first conflict the Australian government had officially been involved in since Vietnam. The Dili massacre in East Timor and the ongoing war in Bougainville both of which involved forces using Australian-made military material, further intensified a focus on the arms industry. And a series of recent forest blockades had demonstrated the ability of disruptive action to shut down destructive activities. Tapping into this upswell, the Stop ADEX campaign branched out significantly in 1990 to include supporters in every state. Regular protests were held outside arms companies and state ministries and an enormous lobbying and education campaign was run by a myriad of churches, unions and social justice organisations. Various union bodies passed resolutions against the arms fair whilst the Australian Capital Territories Trades and Labor Council endorsed a picket line of the site and provided numerous resources. A women's telephone link-up was also organised across all the states of Australia, allowing feminist networks to share information and organise for a women's action in Canberra. With the national campaign gaining momentum, July 1991 saw an initial victory for the campaigners as the ACT's government moved to cancel DeSeco's booking at the National Exhibition Showgrounds. After DeSeco threatened to sue for breach of contract, the ALP-led minority government backed off from a full cancellation, but held firm in passing a motion to, quote, endorse the principle that the Australian Capital Territory should not be used for promoting the international arms trade. With this in place, it was made clear to DeSeco that ADEX would not be held again on Territory Government property. Thanks to all this, campaigners went into ADEX 91 with the wind at their back. Securing a campsite directly across the road from the exhibition site gave them an extra advantage as protesters could literally wake up, roll out of bed and start blockading. Indeed, they quickly got a jump on DeSeco by turning up a week before ADEX 91 was officially to begin. 
Picketing of the site kicked off early and mushroomed into a major blockade involving up to 2,000 people and closing off all entrances. Groups congregated at and occupied different entrance points based on their political beliefs and tactical preferences. Those adhering to strict non-violent action principles blocked one gate with their bodies and star pickets. They engaged in dialogue with the police and checked that horse floats and vehicles coming in and out of an equestrian show were not being used to sneak in ADEX-related equipment. Another gate at the other end of the exhibition site saw a different set of activists build barricades, which were later set alight, out of car bodies, pickets and barbed wire. Literally occupying the middle ground between these two gates, another set of protesters combined the use of tripods, parked vehicles and physical picketing to further deny DeSeco the use of the showgrounds. At points, police cut through fences to get equipment in and with kilometres of fencing to defend, some protesters kept on the lookout, wandering from gate to gate. Unprepared for such a large and determined blockade and with DeSeco unable to get their displays on site, police repression increased. Canberra's paramilitary operations support group were brought in and paraded before protesters with shields and batons, whilst members of the Australian Federal Police were also drafted in from across the country. In response to the rising level of police violence, the majority of protesters remained non-violent, using humour, such as singing Monty Python's Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, to relieve tensions. The police eventually launched a huge operation, taking over 180 protesters into custody. This allowed the arms fair organisers to finally get their equipment into the site, but they now had less than 24 hours to set up. Faced with ongoing protests, some exhibitors pulled out and a number of ticket holders chose not to attend. The ADEX 91 protests dominated national TV news reports and newspaper headlines for over a week. The majority of these stories were negative towards the demonstrators, but authorities appeared to become concerned about how daily images of police attacking protesters might be perceived, even if they were couched by media outlets as being necessary to restore law and order. Towards the end of the protest, police allegations against the protesters became over the top, with false claims aired of protesters wielding acid-filled condoms and nail-studded avocados. Police paraded cooking knives, theatre props and similar items seized in a raid on the protest camp as evidence of violent intentions. Despite none of the police receiving wounds consistent with the use of such weapons and no one being charged with their use or possession, the mainstream media largely reported these claims as fact. The divisions during the protest were echoed in debates that followed in its wake. While some hailed it as a victory and a return to militancy, which would be echoed in later demonstrations against George Bush Senior and university fees, others felt that the negativity generated by the media and burnout associated with such a long and fraught campaign outweighed any gains. While the impact on the arms industry as a whole and outcomes for progressive movements were contested, in terms of the narrower goal of stopping ADEX, the blockade was undoubtedly a success. An attempt by DeSeco to hold an ADEX 93 event in Canberra on Commonwealth land, outside of the ACT government's control, failed. The company then attempted to book a similar event in Queanbeyan under the title of Oztec, using a fairly flimsy argument that weapons would be just one of many forms of technology on display. Permission to use local council facilities was scuttled following intense lobbying from religious, peace and other groups. Ironically, 
the labelling of largely non-violent protesters as, quote, thugs and terrorists by DeSico was to serve the peace movement in the long run. Wherever the company went, they found that local and state authorities were unwilling to risk bringing such chaos to their town. For the next 17 years, the arms industry shied away from holding the event on the scale of ADEX. Instead, they chose to meet and display their wares behind the facade of air shows or away from public view in hotels and military installations. However, with the memory of ADEX fading, a new company emerged in 2007, announcing it would hold the Asia-Pacific Defence and Security Exhibition at the Adelaide Convention Centre from November 11 the following year. The arms fair received a hearty endorsement as well as financial support from the State Australian Labor Party RAND administration, who, in the midst of a collapsing manufacturing sector, had been talking up South Australia as the defence state for some time. From late 2007, peace groups began lobbying against the arms fair, and by the middle of 2008, coalitions of peace, environmental, solidarity and other groups in Adelaide, Sydney and Melbourne had begun to coalesce around the aim of planning a blockade for November. By choosing to open the exhibition on the 90th anniversary of the ending of World War I, arms fair organisers have once again handed their opponents an important public relations advantage. Nevertheless, due to the peace movement experiencing a lull and taking into consideration other factors to do with the timing and location of the arms fair, many campaigners doubted they would be able to draw the numbers needed to shut the event down. Some, however, believed that a disruptive protest could be used to draw public attention and provide a base to build on in the way that ADEX 89 had. With the anti-arms fair campaign gaining momentum, the shock announcement came in early September 2008 that the arms fair would be cancelled due to security concerns. As in 1991, the demonisation of protesters immediately came to the fore, with the South Australian Deputy Premier claiming that the decision was made due to expectations that, quote, feral low-life people that want society to be in a state of near-anarchy for their own perverse pleasure will be descending on Adelaide. In spite of the predictable statements about evil protesters, it soon became evident that the projected costs of policing had been the determining factor in the cancellation. The South Australian Police had advised the government in previous days that they would require 500 officers for the protest and that annual leave would have to be cancelled for the entire force. This will cost far more than the government was willing to pay for an event, which already had the potential to reflect badly upon them. The role of political and financial costs was further reinforced by arms fair organisers after they admitted that the Commonwealth Government and the Department of Defence had failed to get behind the project, further undermining its viability. Once more, the political and economic costs of holding an arms fair had been shown to outweigh the potential profits, and the peace movement took heart in a rare victory. The weapons industry once again returned to low-profile gatherings and the use of air shows. And it would be another 13 years before a new large-scale event, the International Land Defence Exposition, aka Land Forces, was held in Australia, this time in Brisbane in 2021. Despite occurring in the midst of a pandemic, with lockdowns taking place in other parts of the country, this too was opposed by a coalition which, under the banner of Disrupt Land Forces, brought together 300 people to engage in seven days of protest. Equipment was occupied before and during the arms fair, and a launch held involving solidarity fires being lit in Musgrave Park and the highlands of West Papua. 
noisy and creative protests plagued local arms firms and the Expo, all of which resulted in community building, 37 arrests and much media coverage. To learn more about the history of Australian campaigns against arms fairs, visit commonslibrary.org. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.41 in the morning, and you just heard a recording of SUA Show's Ian McIntyre, who took a look at arms fairs in Australia and the local history of community resistance against these events. Ian's written extensively on this topic in the book Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, the ADEX 91 story, which gives a detailed account of the November 1991 protest where over a 1,000 protesters blockaded the National Exhibition Centre in Canberra, Australia for 12 days with the aim of shutting down the Australia International Defence Exhibition. And for more information, you can head to 3cr.org.au forward slash news forward slash always dash look dash bright dash side dash life. Um, and we will have a link to that in our show notes as well. Um, and it's um, been excellent to listen to that in the lead up to the discussion that we're hopefully having later with Disrupt Land Forces, where we're getting some live updates. So um, you're tuned in to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. <laughs> Black Spark is an independent, volunteer-run bookshop, gallery, music and community space in Northcote, Nam, dedicated to creativity, learning and liberation. Black Spark is a space for the entire community, free of charge, hosting art, music and literary events. To keep Black Spark free, open and accessible to everybody, we need your help. We are calling for your support for our rent fundraiser to keep our doors open into the coming years. With your support, we can continue to host book and exhibition launches, art auctions, fundraisers, music gigs and facilitate opportunities and growth for emerging artists and grassroots communities. For more information, visit Keep Black Spark Alive on chuffed.com or check out Black Spark on all the socials. Keep Black Spark Alive! A 3CR supporter. CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Now we are joined by 3CR returnee Matt Kunkel, who is the CEO of the Migrant Workers Centre. And he joins us today to speak on the Centre's new report, Waiting to be Seen, Problems of Australia's visa processing delays, which shows Australia's migration system has denied tens of thousands of people the stability and certainty to build their lives. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Matt. Oh, thanks for having me. No, of course. Thanks for coming back. Yeah, <laughs> um, always. The 3CR. No, thank you. So I think, firstly, I know visas can be confusing. I know they always have been for me, would you mind maybe just starting off with what a visa is and the different types of visas that are common in Australia? A visa basically is a permission slip of sorts, uh, a permit to be in the country. And what it does is it allows you to get through customs and immigration. And then it also, though, and most powerfully has a lot of, in many cases, restrictions on people, what you can do while you're here. So whether you can work, whether you can study, um, how long you can be here, uh, in 
indeed whether you're allowed to leave and come back again, those sorts of things. So there's lots of different types of visas, and you know there are some that people would be very familiar with, but there are some really niche ones as well. Um, you know, one of the <clears throat> one of the big ones that everybody would know is about international students. That's a really really common one in in Australia. Mm-hmm. That visa, for example, allows um, people to come into into the country but it puts restrictions on their ability to work. So they can only work 40 hours per fortnight uh, when the class is on, but they can work more than that when, when class is not on. So all of that's actually in the visa that they receive. The other one that people might not know is that um, the, one of the biggest categories of temporary visa holders in Australia are actually people from New Zealand, who uh, many of whom have been here for you know many, many years, maybe even 20 years or so, but still don't have the right to permanently stay in Australia. So that's another really big category. And as we know, there are all sorts of other visas like, you know, refugee visas or, you know, protection visas and visitor visas for tourists and, and indeed bridging visas, which is the, um, the big topic of this report. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really illuminating because I didn't know about the uh, New Zealand visa thing. That's really interesting. Um, especially from the report that it shows that there's been an increase in wait time for visas, mainly temporary visas being processed way faster by the Department of Home Affairs than permanent visas. Could you maybe explain what is causing these delays and how it's actually contributing, you know, as you've said, to the migrant worker exploitation in Australia? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but um, what our report shows is that pretty much all of the temporary forms of visa are being processed more quickly than um, the permanent forms. Uh, and what we've had in the last decade or more is a distortion of our system to, towards temporary t- types of migration rather than permanent types of migration. So we hear a lot about it in the, um, in the news about how business want more temporary migrants to come back. Um, well, we say that there's actually some really serious issues there. So people who are in the country or even want to stay and find that very narrow pathway to a permanent residency visa are being asked to wait, in some cases, more than three years to actually secure that visa, um, which means that there's a lot of people out there, you know, more than a million people out there on a temporary form of visa, uh, which doesn't provide them the certainty to start building their lives. Uh, a previous report we, we put out last year showed that around two out of every three migrant workers who are on a temporary form of visa uh, were being underpaid or otherwise exploited in the workplace. So um, there's a really clear link between these temporary visas uh, and people's likelihood to have a difficult time. And part of that is because many people on temporary visas are actually sponsored by their boss. So their boss not only has the power over what they're being paid, but over their ability to stay in the country. So it makes it really tough um, to, to kind of stand up and demand your rights when Um, you might be putting at risk maybe five, ten years of of trying to find a permanent visa. That's such a difficult spot to be in and know that, yeah, if you were to speak up and get support, you lose all the time and effort and money and moving away from your family and all your support networks. That's unbelievably challenging, and I know that that's a lot of the work that you guys do as well. Um, Mm. In terms of the visa protests that were held last week. We saw that 887 visa holders held protests across Australia. Uh, why were these protests occurring and what does it mean for migrant workers? Oh, yeah, sure. So the 887, so all the visas have numbers and 887 visas, one of those 
numbers. So um, it's a number, it's a, it's a visa class that allows people to stay in the country permanently. So it's a really, like, it's a, it's a visa that should be relatively straightforward to approve. But what we've got are people who have been living in regional areas for the two years, living and working in regional areas for two years, who have applied for this, uh, I guess, subsequent visa that allows them to stay in the country permanently. Um, but what we've got is those people are out there languishing on visa, uh, bridging visas for, for, you know, in our, in our report, in some cases, 25 months. So you can imagine, you know, put working for two years, then you put your application in for a permanent visa. You're on this bridging visa with no certainty for two years. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, um, I think frustrating. And the other part of it is these people are in limbo. They're, they can't, you know, they can't buy a house without paying more restrictive um, taxes to the government. They can't get child childcare subsidy for their kids. Their um, their elder kids can't go to university without paying international student fees. Um, try getting a rental uh, a rental house when you tell the landlord that you've only got a bridging visa and you might have to you know might have to leave. So we've got all of these problems, and, and I think the frustration has built in the community of eight eight seven visa holders. And they've organised collectively. They're, you know, they've got big WhatsApp groups and Telegram groups and the whole thing. Um, and they've managed to channel their anger and frustration at these uh, unjustifiably long waiting times into action. And they're starting to you know, coordinate activity and protests around the country. That's pretty incredible. Um, I know that, you know, the power of advocacy, but being able to know that yeah, maybe there are restrictions to why we're here and what we can do, and there's a lot of barriers, but we're going to come together and uh, protest that this is actually not good enough. It's incredible to see. Oh, it's huge and really courageous too, because you can imagine, you know, the Department of Home Affairs and the, you know, the the, the government more broadly. You know, if you there's this idea that if you're a migrant migrant worker or you come to this country, you need to be really well behaved. You need to be the perfect migrant. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, what we're seeing here is that our system is just so very broken um, that people are so frustrated and they're making demands that they no longer want to have their lives tracked on these bridging visas. They want certainty and they want the security to build their lives like the rest of us in, in this country. Absolutely. And just knowing that a lot of the people that are on temporary visas end up, I think last time we spoke about how it's almost being permanently temporary. Yeah, um, well, that's right. Some people have been here for more than a decade and still haven't found a pathway or still haven't found that, that permanent residency visa. And what we saw at the Jobs Summit was a lot of discussion around putting permanent migration back into the centre of the migration system. And we would really welcome that because what we've seen, you know, over the last 10, 15 years is an explosion, really, of this reliance on temporary forms of, you know, visas that are, yeah, as you said, you know, people on a treadmill or, or on a merry-go-round jumping from one temporary visa to another trying to find that really slim pathway to get that visa that they, they can actually stay here for the, the long term. And, you know, as, as I said at the top, the big thing about the the waiting times is the Department of Home Affairs seems to be prioritising those applications that are for these temporary forms of visa. So, you know, you can get a student visa in a couple of months um, or you can get an employer-sponsored visa in, you know, six to nine months. Um, but if you're trying to get that permit, you're already here, you're already, um, you know, in the community and trying to build your life and you just want that security, you're waiting for two or maybe three years to get that security and you're, all the time you're on this bridging visa. 
Yeah, I think one thing that really stood out to me in the report was that just in general, the number of people on bridging visas has increased sixfold. So in mm. 2021, it was sitting at 333,357 mm. people, um, mm. which includes a lot of people on a bridging visa. Many of them are seeking asylum. I know, you know, we've spoken about why it's definitely a problem. But could you speak more about specifically the bridging visa and why it's a problem that so many people are waiting and what recommendations you have to maybe address this hike? Yeah, I mean, look, the last two years have been really unique, obviously, with COVID. And we've seen, um, you know, a 50% increase in bridging visas just in 2020 alone. And part of this was many people who were in the country and might have been sponsored by their employer lost their job because there was no support for them. There was no job seeker. There was no job keeper, right? So um, what those people did, many of them, was to find another visa to make sure they could keep their settlement um, plan alive. They might have become an international student or they might have sought uh, a regional visa that has this really long waiting time. And a bridging visa really is just... it's If you're on a visa uh, and you make an application for a new visa... Um, while the department comes to look at your substantive visa, we call it, or they call it, um, you're on this bridging visa, which has certain, certain restrictions. So um, during COVID, this number really ballooned um, because people were having to kind of shift from one temporary form of um, visa to another. But the other part of it, too, is that the government and the department just need more people to process visas. The... Um, a report shows that as the number of people uh, applying for visas has increased, cuts to the Department of Home Affairs and the staffing of the public service show that there's just fewer people processing these onshore visa applications. So um, what we say is that they should, you know, first and foremost, they should increase the proportion of permanent visas within the migration system. That would mean that there's less churn in the public sector and the department. You know, people aren't, you know, needlessly kind of applying for multiple visas when one would be enough. Um, and, and like, the first thing they could do, and I know they have started to do this, is to allocate increased resources and employees to processing to, to clear this backlog of um, onshore visa applications that they've, um, that they've inherited from the last government. Um, but really what we're saying is we should be pegging this. We should, we should be pegging the system to a... Um, to benchmarks that people shouldn't be waiting more than, say, six months for a visa. Um, you know, other countries like Canada have these benchmarking processes where, you know, they uh, migrants have a right to have their visas um, heard and, and dealt with in a certain time. Uh, and more and moreover, people need more... Migrants need more understanding from the department about how their, uh, their visas are being treated. It's really hard. You know, like, you put your application and you just wait. There's no, you know, you don't, you know, you're on the phone, it's like you're number five in the queue or whatever. Like, there's nothing like that. You just put it in and you wait and you, one day, if you're lucky enough, you, you get it approved. But what you've got over your head the entire time is one day it might not be approved and you might have to pack your home up and, um, and move somewhere else. So more, more transparency would be really important there. And what we also want, uh, and we've been calling for for a long time is more justice and compensation for migrant workers who are um, mistreated in the workplace. Uh, that's really key for us because we know um, that our visa system brews the circumstances where unscrupulous bosses can, can really drive um, migrant workers uh, into some 
really difficult situations in the workplace. And the last thing I'd say is around bridging visas is there's this particular type of bridging visa called bridging visa E, and that's the bridging visa that many people who have applied for asylum on are in this country. Uh, they hold that visa. They're not allowed to work. So we've got these people out there who are, you know, fleeing, are fleeing really difficult places, uh, you know, looking for security and safety uh, from us, which is what we owe them. And we cruelly deny them the ability to get proper support, um, you know, proper income support. But also we cruelly deny them the ability to even go out and support themselves and their families by um, finding employment. So we're calling on some less restriction, uh, less restrictive um, measures around bridging visas and providing the, the right to work to more people in this country. Yeah, those are some really incredibly important recommendations that you've provided in the report uh, to the department. But uh, can we also... Uh, read the report? Could you tell us how to do that or how to get involved in the work? Yeah, sure thing. Um, you, best, best way to get in touch with us is to head over to our website, www.migrantworkers.org.au. You can read the report online there. And if you're interested in getting more involved uh, in any of the work we do, or indeed if you're interested in getting involved in the campaign um, to fight their um, visa processing time, uh, you can sign up to volunteer there and we can hook you up with the right people. Okay, amazing. We'll also link that in our show notes. But thanks so much, Matt, for coming on to Thursday Great. Breakfast. Thanks very much. See you next time. Bye. You've just heard from Matt Kunkel, who's the CEO of Migrant Workers Centre, and he spoke to us about the new report, Waiting to be Seen, Problems of Australia's Visa Processing Delays. Actually, just wanted to quickly um, put an addendum on that as well, um, because Listeners might be familiar with the fact that um, refugees who were detained uh, in, in Manus Island and then brought here via Medivac and detained at Mantra Hotel in Preston um, have now started to receive letters from the Department of Home Affairs telling them that settlement in Australia is not an option. So Farhad Bandesh, um, you know, spoke to spoke to the Sydney Morning Herald about this on the 3rd of October, and I really encourage people to to read that because it's an absolute disgrace. Um, you know, playing politics about uh, refugee justice and then pretending that there's nothing that you can do about it. Um, it is it's really disgusting that he's uh, once again facing uh, him and so many others are once again facing having their their lives that they've only just tenuously established ripped apart. Um, so, yeah, just just something to be aware of and just an absolute disgrace. Uh, you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. From the 1st to the 7th of October in Mianjin, Brisbane, the Disrupt Land Forces Festival of Resistance will be held to disrupt and interrupt the efforts of the military-industrial complex who generate conflict as the byproduct of profit. Disrupt Land Forces is a decentralised, intersectional, direct action campaign taking place over seven days through creative and collaborative action in resistance to Land Forces, the largest land-based weapons expo in the Southern Hemisphere. You can hear more about those profiteering off death and destruction and the history of anti-military activism in so-called Australia on 3CR Community Radio in the coming weeks. So head to Mianjin on the 1st to the 7th of October 2022 for the Disrupt Land Forces Festival of Resistance. For more information, visit disruptlandforces.org. A 3CR supporter.
Trivia's back, baby. Done by Law's legendary trivia night returns Friday the 21st of October at Collingwood Town Hall. Expect an evening of sparkling wit, cunning competition, and of course, the glorious glory of sweet, sweet victory. Will it be yours? You'll have to come along to find out. Is this your first year? Welcome. You might just be the best among us, but you'll have to strut your stuff to prove it. Let's get together to raise much-needed funds for the incredible 3CR Community Radio. 3CR is 100% community-controlled and relies on annual fundraising to keep its amazing local content on air. Book individually or register a team of up to 10 people for Dunbar Law's Trivia Night. Tickets available online. Follow the links from the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people, and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we are getting some live updates from Disrupt Land Forces 2022, which is an anti-militarist week of protest against land forces, the largest land-based weapons expo in the Southern Hemisphere. And it's running from the 1st to the 7th of October, creatively disrupting the military-industrial complex. And we're uh, we're joined again by Zelda. Good morning, Zelda. Hey, Priya. Thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. Um, Thank you so much for for making time. I know it's been a really, really busy week. Um, It sure has. Yeah. So um, I guess... Uh, for, for listeners who might just be tuning in uh, to, to this Disrupt Land Forces coverage that we've been trying to provide across the breakfast shows across the past week, um, would you mind just telling, uh, providing a little bit of a, a, a potted summary of uh, Disrupt Land Forces and about the expo itself and why it's so important uh, to engage in this sort of uh, direct resistance? Yeah, sure. So Land Forces, as you mentioned, is the biggest weapons expo in the Southern Hemisphere. It's where all of the weapons manufacturers, um, government officials, trade delegates, lobbyists come together to spruik their wares, um, show off the latest killing technology that they've created and make the deals that result in in war crimes mm-hmm. against people like us. So Disrupt Land Forces is a coalition of uh, feminist and First Nation, um, environmentalists, climate activists, um, peace activists, um, who've come together to try and disrupt this expo as much as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're committed to um, peaceful protests so that we do not harm anybody, um, but we, at the same time we encourage um, creative interventions mm-hmm 
and we've seen some magnificent creative interventions over the last few days. Yeah, absolutely. I've been uh, really excited seeing the Skanky Tanky, which is um, uh, an amazing little vehicle set up, um, spray-painted, bright pink. Uh, it's just like there, there's some amazing resistance art that's coming out of Disrupt Land Forces. I was wondering if you wanted to speak to, to any of the really cool creative work that um, that people have been engaged in to sort of uh, provide visual representations of, of resistance against this war machine. Yeah, that'd be great. So, well, from 3CR's coffers, we have um, the treaty enforcers, so the red coveralls um, with treaty enforcer squad on them. The treaty enforcers were out in force um, visiting Boeing, the nuclear uh, weapons maker, yesterday afternoon. Um, XR led a beautiful funeral parade uh, through town yesterday evening. So down past where the wall makers were coming out of their convention and around into the areas where they're all, you know, having their schmoozing drinks and mm-hmm. coffees. Um, and they had, um, well, the Red Rebels came out, who were always you know, superb. And they also had um, a whole lot of child-sized um, bodies, black fiberglass bodies on bamboo stretches that were being dragged through the streets. Um, then we also mobilised the zombie soldiers, so we've got all these um, current you know, ADF uniforms, so people wearing those but with bloodied bandages, and um, they were the, the zombie soldiers back from the dead to avenge the war machine that killed them. Uh, so that's just one example from one action yesterday afternoon. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, uh, especially because, uh, you know, the, the way that these events happen, the way, the, the way that these expos happen, I think it's not that obvious to the general public, um, you know, when these things are going on at the, at the Brisbane Convention Center is, is where, uh, disrupt land, uh, sorry, is where land forces is happening at the moment. But I reckon, uh, you know, to the average passerby who, um, hadn't been paying attention to this kind of area, they probably wouldn't notice this. So I think the really, um, you know, direct visual disruptions, these kind of creative protests are so important in terms of drawing attention to exactly what's happening behind these closed doors because um, there's also been some pretty, um, there's been a conspicuous silence, I would say, in mainstream media about both the disrupt land forces protests but also about land forces in general. And, um, you know, I, I had, I did see some coverage yesterday of a, a couple of activists being arrested, uh, you know, while engaging in a peaceful, nonviolent demonstration, including, uh, Jono Sriranganathan. Um, so I'm just, I just wanted to check in on that, you know, both, both the state of, um, you know, lack of mainstream media attention to, to this really important, uh, resistance, but also, um, you know, the, the policing that, that people have faced, uh, you know, based on this nonviolent protest. I just yeah, just on the media coverage too. I think that weapons manufacturers get away with their um, shonky work and with sucking up billions worth of public money because they're out of the public eye, because nobody's really aware. You know, every now and again there's a big announcement: oh, we're going to spend 170 billion on submarines, and shockwaves ripple out in the community for a while, but it kind of goes away. So, I mean, part of what we're we're doing here is highlighting the fact that you know, billions and billions of our money is going to 
these weapons corporations to make weapons which will then be sold back to the Australian government to mm-hmm. use against us or to the Indonesian government to use against our friends in West Papua or to the Israeli, well, Israel make, make most of their own weapons. But Australia is trying to become a top 10 weapons exporter. Mm-hmm. So they're pumping billions and billions into the coffers of private companies that, that manufacture weapons. Um, the policing has been, look, you know, they're a bit antsy, but I, I actually feel like they're not as bad as they were last year. Yeah, fair. <laughs> they're not being, um, like, so far, touch wood, they haven't assaulted anyone. Um, they have been arresting, but we find that weapons companies don't want arrests. I mean, mm. because, again, it brings attention to them and they get away with making, you know, machinery that will maim and blow apart human bodies because they stay out of public attention, out of the public eye. So yesterday afternoon, two grandmothers scaled the balcony of Boeing building here in Brisbane, in the Brisbane suburbs. Um, We pasted um, images of people who've been harmed by Boeing weapons um, all over the windows of that office and stayed up there for quite a long time. And the police didn't make any attempt to arrest them. Mm. So that's probably the company's call. Like if Boeing had said, yeah, arrest those women, get rid of them, the police would have acted. But yeah. you know, it's a trespass offence and the company did not make a trespass allegation, you know, complaint. So eventually um, our two um, staunch grandmothers um, climbed down and were not arrested. So yeah, yay us. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think it is both, you know, Thank goodness that they they weren't, you know, subject to any uh, police violence or intervention there. But I also totally, um, totally take your point about, um, you know, being able to continue flying under the radar by not, you know, sticking the police on on protesters, Um, because I remember, you know, with things like there, there was a protest against Elbit um, a few, uh, was it last year? I've got no concept of time, but I was there um, and uh you know, protesting outside Elbit's headquarters uh, in Narm, and um, instead of uh, you know having having the police um, have a substantial presence there, they just had their offices shut down for the day. Um, and I can totally see that that tactic of um, these weapons companies wanting to not make a big deal out of it, so that they don't then get that extra media scrutiny and public scrutiny. Yeah, absolutely, Priya. Um, and, I mean, that was a victory for us, right? We closed Elbert for the day just mm-hmm. by saying that we were going there. Um, yeah. So, you know, we'll keep, to, we'll keep doing that tactic. We'll keep trying that. Every day that we close their business is a victory for, you know, human rights. Um, yeah. So today's uh, the final day yes. of the expo. Um, we've got plenty more going on today. We've got a choir heading down there to um, sing at them. But you know, we've been so in their faces and up their noses and in their ears. Uh, the wall makers definitely know that they don't, they're not welcome here. Mm-hmm. And um, word from the inside, we had someone on the inside saying, you know, people are talking about feeling intimidated by the protesters. Um, so, again, that's a win for us. Mm-hmm. Um, if we can intimidate them just by speaking the truth, like we have no weapons. Um, no one, we're committed to not harming anybody mm-hmm. and we make that very clear. So, um, the, what's intimidating them is hearing the truth of, of their trade. Yeah. Um, 
So, yeah, victory for us. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I can't can't give you guys enough uh, props for the amount of incredible you know, resistance work that you're doing and drawing attention to this violent, you know, colonial genocidal industry um, for those who aren't able to or who haven't been able to make it up to Minjin. Um, where can people find out more information about the actions that you've been doing and also take useful action um, in solidarity against, uh, you know, people who are most affected by this violent industry? Yeah, thanks for that. Great question. So um, our Facebook and Instagram are where you'll, you know, get lots of great images of what's been going on and a bit of a you know, summary of what's happening up here in Mianjin. Um, that's Wage Peace AU on Facebook and Disrupt Wards on Instagram. So, yeah, jump on, um, give us some comments, let us know you're there. We love to see that. Um, the, the website, disruptlandforces.org. Mm-hmm. has quite a bit of information about the companies that are involved and it'll also take you to um, our web, our, our main website, mm-hmm. wagepeaceau.org, uh, which will, um, yeah, you can sign up there and let us know that you're keen to participate in some anti-militarist action. Uh, where you are, we have organisers in Mianjin, in Sydney and in Nam now. And I'll just give one more shout-out sure. um, before I... Go if that's all right yeah. to um, Uncle Ned Hargraves, uh, Jumpy Jimper, who's about to head back to um, Yundamu today. Um, yesterday, Jumpy Jimper went out to um, Naya, which is the factory, the, the company that sells bullets and guns to the Australian police. And Jumpy Jimper just riled at them mm-hmm. for like, he, he was just incredible. He just shouted and yelled and really let them know how angry he was that they're profiting off um, arming Australian police. Mm-hmm. And he talked about the, you know, the horrible consequence of that in, in Yundamu with the death of his nephew, Kumanjaya Walker. Mm-hmm. Um, invited them over and over to come out and talk to him. Um, and, you know, they didn't, of course. They stayed in their glass castle, mm-hmm. um, refused an invitation to come and speak with, with Jumpy Jumper. Um, but that was a really powerful moment for all of us to see yeah. Uncle Ned speaking directly to the people who've made the mo- made their money out of the murder of um, of that young fellow. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll put a link in our show notes as well to Karanjala Mojari um, and you know the the excellent campaigning work that they've been doing uh, out in Yundamu as well. Look, Zelda, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us this morning. I really appreciate appreciate the updates and uh, hope today goes well. Thanks, Priya. We appreciate 3CR. We love you guys. Oh, take care. Okay. Bye, Priya. Bye. And uh, that was Zelda reporting live from Disrupt Land Forces 2022, which is an anti-militarist week of protest against land forces, the largest land-based weapons expo in the Southern Hemisphere. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Black Spark is an independent, volunteer-run bookshop, gallery, music and community space in Northcote, Nam, dedicated to creativity, learning and liberation. Black Spark is a space for the entire community, free of charge, hosting art, music and literary events. To keep Black Spark free, open and accessible to everybody, we need your help. 
We are calling for your support for our rent fundraiser to keep our doors open into the coming years. With your support, we can continue to host book and exhibition launches, art auctions, fundraisers, music gigs and facilitate opportunities and growth for emerging artists and grassroots communities. For more information, visit Keep Black Spark Alive on chuffed.com or check out Black Spark on all the socials. Keep Black Spark Alive! A 3CR supporter. Three CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings, cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Welcome back to Thursday breakfast on Three CR eight five five AM. Next up, we will be talking to Ramak Bamzar, who is an Iranian-Australian photo media artist and costume designer, born in Tehran, who immigrated to Australia in 2010. Through staged photography, Ramak delves into her vulnerabilities, memories and anxieties to explore the formation and development of female identity under religious dogma and traditional values. She has completed a bachelor's degree in photography at Azad University of Art and Architecture and is currently in the final semester of her Master of Fine Art at the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology. Ramak uh, joins us today to share her experience of growing up in Iran, Masa Amini's recent death, the ensuing fight for freedom led by women, and how creative practice can help tell the stories that need to be told. Good morning, Ramak. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I just wanted to say before we begin that today we are addressing some really troubling issues, so listeners, please be warned that the following discussion may contain descriptions of gender-based violence. How are you this morning, Ramak? Good morning. I'm really good, and I really appreciate that I have this chance to talk about what's happening in my practice. Amazing. So let's get straight into it, I guess. I thought we could begin with some background. So, Ramak, you were born in 1980. That's the year that official conflict began between Iraq and Iran. Gender-based violence is so closely entwined in conflict, with women and LGBTQ communities falling at the intersections of cultural, political and economic harm. Could you share your understanding of state-endorsed gender-based violence during your childhood and how you've seen this evolve into the current situation? Yes, I was born in Tehran a year after the Islamic Revolution and after a few months in 1981, the Iran-Iraq war started, which lasted for eight years. So um, we were the first generation of the after revolution. So the government started to establish a strict religious and Islamic ideology in the society, including the schools. So uh, compulsory hijab, and gender segregation mm-hmm. uh, of school universities and many other public places and even in the you know the public space it happened and um i have a really actually not a good memory from, from that time and it, i'm not the only one but um uh, we all had a really hard time uh, rising with that strong ideology 
so um, yes, it it was it was really hard, and it continued for forty something years. Uh, and we see what's happening now in Iran, and people had enough. <laughs> Mm, yeah, I can see. Like, I can imagine that even being born into such conflict, this is never normal to us. And as humans, it's, yeah, it's incredibly difficult, uh, no matter how normalized it is in your country. Um, so recently there's been a lot going on in Iran. We've seen a lot about it in the headlines. The death of Masa Amini, who was just 22 years old after being taken into custody by the guidance patrol, also known as the morality police in Iran, um, triggered widespread protests across Iran and the world. So would you be able to tell us a bit about what actually happened to Masa and why do you believe her death warrants an urgent response from the global community? Yeah, Masa Amini was 22 years old, young girl. She actually, she's originally, she's a Kurdish Iranian girl. She was in Tehran for visiting her family with her brother. And uh, she got arrested because we have this, you know, mandatory hijab in Iran. And Mm. her hijab wasn't appropriate, which is, you know, it's such a shame because, you know, for just a little bit of hair, she got arrested. And... They took her and they beat her really badly. And after three days in coma, she passed away. And I think that to me and so many Iranians, that was the uh, turning point of like, we have enough and this is the time we stand up and uh, for our dignity, our freedom, and especially the, you know, the pressure on women in Iran is strongly brutal and massive and as a person I lived there for 30 years I have heaps of experience so um, I think at this stage I really think why actually the the community around the world has to stand up because this is not about Iran this is about dignity this is about human rights and this is about uh, women's rights so and we live in 21st century. Is I think um, we we have to be together and share this story and you know help those Iranians. They are fighting for freedom, for their dignity. And um, I hear here and there people saying, you know, this is about hijab, but it, it, this is not about hijab. This is about like pressure. This is about the government who. Uh, put pressure on people and uh, it's about dictatorship. And I think in 21st century, we don't have any place with this kind of government and we have to stand up for that. Yeah, I think it's really important to remember that our rights as a global community are all connected and it's really, yeah, it's important to remember that um, standing up for women and gender diverse people in other countries directly impacts um, our safety here in Australia. Um, It's also, I was reading an article yesterday uh, that I found really kind of honed in on that point that it's not about the hijab. You know, there's been, there's gender-based violence in countries that uh, do not enforce the hijab and before it was uh, compulsory in Iran, there was 
I mean, I, I'm not sure, I haven't fact-checked this, but apparently there was also violence towards women who um, would wear the hijab because it was considered really backwards and old-fashioned. Absolutely. You know, I think the situation in Iran, as I said, is not about hijab. It's about dictatorship. It's mm-hmm. about, like, the government, basically, uh, with the expression, extreme expression of Islam, like force people and especially women to do what they want to do. And enough is enough. You know, we had enough. And we, I know my, especially my generation, you know, growing up under exactly dictatorship and, you know, we brainwashed since we were a kid. Uh, kids in, in Iran still, when you are like going to prep or primary school, you have to wear a hijab. They do gender segregation from the beginning and they start mm. brainwashing. They teach you at the school how to read Quran, which is, you know, we are not against Islam. The problem here is mm. why we have to listen to someone who forced us to do it. Forcing is the problem. Yeah. We have choice. We have to have choice about our body, about our thoughts, about what we're thinking, which is like taken from Iranians and especially from women for such a really long time. And a part of that LGBT community in Iran, they have, they are suffering. They have mm. a really hard time in there. So, it's, you know, it's about humanity. I think you know, what happened in America a couple of years ago about, you know, this office man, George Floyd, which was really brutal. Mm-hmm. It happened again. And uh, this is the time to people all, as you said, we all connected. So global community, they have to stand up for this because it gets really viral and it's everywhere. And that's right. So this is. This is what's happening. Yeah. Um, I'd like to just really emphasize the point you made um, about why it's so important to challenge the idea that gender-based violence in Muslim-majority countries is not a problem solely to do with Islam. This kind of reductive reading, I think, really obscures larger issues affecting access to human rights. Could you maybe briefly go over some of the other factors that obstruct the fight for freedom in Iran? Absolutely. In my opinion, you know, Islamic Republic in Iran has got a really extreme expression of Islam. And uh, that became, they use it as a weapon. They use it as a power to control people. So that's the expression, unfortunately, in not just in Iran, in so many countries in Middle East, they have this extreme and radical expression of Islam, which is directly influence of their people. And uh, I think, you know, in the modern life, in this new era, we don't have any place for that. Uh, we have, you know, our individual choices. We have our individual decisions to make. And uh, it has to, politics, it has to be separate from religion, that's, that's mm. the thing, that's the, that, that's the problem, I think, in Middle East. They mm. all mix it up together, and the government and this uh, dictatorship use it as a weapon, as a, like a power to force people and control them. Ramak, thank you so much for talking to us today. I think that's all we have time for, but we really appreciate your um, 
sharing your experience and thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving me this time. Thank you and have a lovely day. You too. And that was Ramak Bamzar, who joined uh, Leela just now to discuss some of the situation in Iran and, uh, I guess, about the uh, intersections between art and feminism and the importance of global solidarity at this time. That's all we've got time for today on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. And we'll catch you next week. And uh, until then, stay safe and uh, everything will be in our show notes. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.